Colossians chapter 3. Now, lest you think I, uh, me and you fell down the rabbit hole and uh, plopped out the other side on this past Sunday night, I am aware uh, that I preached out of this passage Sunday night. But what you're unaware of is I didn't get all my sermon preached Sunday night. And uh, you all didn't listen fast enough, and so we weren't able. I wanted to try to hurry up and get done, but you just didn't listen fast enough. So uh, I'd like to spend a few moments tonight looking at that chapter and that passage again, share a few more things that the Lord had on my heart, and uh, we'll do our best to not uh, recede ground that we've already been over too much. Colossians chapter number 3, beginning in verse number 1. Colossians chapter 3, verse number 1. The Bible says, If ye then be risen with Christ... Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. For there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thanks for letting us be in the house of God. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us as we take the word of God, that it might be applied truly, accurately, rightly, and in such a way that would bring you glory and produce obedience in us, Lord, and help us to approach it with a submissive attitude, Lord, knowing, Father, that we need it desperately. Lord, and you love us more than we love you, but, Lord, we need you more than you need us. And so I pray that you'd help us to come with the right spirit, the right attitude tonight as we approach your word. We'll be sure to thank you for what's accomplished. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we preached on Sunday night, and I suppose carrying this same thought through tonight on on this idea, living in light of his life. Uh, you know, as you study through the Bible, uh, the, uh, the study of the Bible is in many ways a practice in distinctions. Uh, I, I will do my best to not, uh, you know, do too much review, but I, I do want to equip you with a few thoughts before we get into the message tonight. You know, the Word of God, we, we call ourselves dispensationalists, and what that means is we recognize and respect the distinctions that God makes in, in the Bible. And uh, the Bible talks about rightly dividing the word of truth, Uh, not rightly uniting it or combining it, but rightly dividing it. In other words, recognizing the divisions and distinctions and differences that God notes in the Bible. And so in the word of God, uh, rightly dividing the truth, being a dispensationalist or having a dispensational perspective on the word of God means to recognize and respect the distinctions that God makes. 
And most error, modern day theological error, comes from recklessly abandoning those distinctions. From pretending as though they don't exist and studying the Bible not in light of those truths. There are a a plethora of ones we could talk about, but if I was to give you three, three that I think are paramount. If you get these three wrong as you study your Bible, you're going to get all mixed up. Your theology's uh, going to not make any sense whatsoever, won't be cohesive, it'll stunt your spiritual growth. The first distinction is the distinction between Jew and Gentile. Uh, if you don't understand that distinction and apply it appropriately in the Word of God, it's going to mix up your theology severely. Another distinction is the distinction between the rapture and the glorious appearing. Both of these are aspects to the second coming of Jesus Christ. But the rapture is when he appears, or excuse me, does not appear, but rather returns that he might take his bride, the church, home to heaven with him. And then seven years later, the close of the tribulation period, he's going to appear. The Bible calls this the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The first is private. We might use that terminology or secret. The first is personal to those believers that know him. This, by the way, is what the Hebrews writer means when it says that he'll, uh, to those that look for him, shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. doesn't mean if you're not living a life of spiritual vigilance, you won't get to go to heaven. But what it means is this, that the first time he came unto a people that look not for him, but now he's coming back to a people that are looking for him. Uh, who's he coming back for? He's not coming back in the rapture for the world at large. He's coming back for that class of people that should be looking for him. And that's born again believers. And of course, the glorious appearing, he will appear publicly, visibly. We could use the term globally. The Bible says uh, that he'll set his foot on the Mount of Olives and split it in two and the whole world will look at him uh, whom uh, they have pierced. And the Bible says it'll be like the lightning from the east to the west. It'll be a global known event when he returns in the glorious appearing. A third distinction that is paramount is the distinction between what we could call positional truth and practical truth. Now, to just explain it real simply, positional truth is how God judicially chooses to see you. How he chooses to treat you in light of the cross of Calvary and our standing with him. I'll tell you this, God treats me a lot better than I am. And God uh, is, is kinder to me than I deserve, and He's more gracious to me than I deserve. And I have a standing far above my character. I don't deserve, hey listen, I don't always live like a son of God. But to as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on his name. I don't always behave like a joint heir of Jesus Christ, a fellow heir with God. I don't always behave in that way. But he has chosen in light of Calvary to treat me thusly, to reckon me in that situation. So there's positional truth, how God judicially chooses to see us. And then there's practical truth. And that's the way we live and conduct ourselves the way we behave. When we approach our passage tonight, we'll find that that third distinction looms largely. It stands as a shadow over the page. If you don't know that, you're going to miss a lot of what Paul's talking about. And this passage follows a pattern that Paul uses all throughout the Pauline epistles, where he will point back to a historical event. Most of the time, he's pointing back to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he will extrapolate from that or draw from that historical fact, a positional truth. In other words, you know, Christ couldn't have just died in any way. He had to die the way he died. He couldn't have just been left out in the open or burned upon a pyre. He had to be buried. 
And in his resurrection, he raised in such a way for such a reason. Because all of these effectuated and secured certain spiritual realities for you and for I. For homework, read Romans 6. and It will give you a lot of perspective about Paul doing that. Pointing to the death of Christ and saying that we died with him on Calvary. Now, of course, practically, neither you nor I was there with him on that day uh, at Calvary. But positionally, when we believed on Christ, that, that old nature, that old man was crucified with Christ. So there is a positional truth. And then Paul, from that, will make a practical application. He does that, of course, in Romans chapter number 6. He says, verse number 8, Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. He goes on to say in verse number 11, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, Christ died, was buried, and rose again. Spiritually, when you got born again, you were figuratively, or or positionally crucified with him, buried and raised from the dead. And now he says, reckon. That's a good Southern King James Bible word. Somebody say amen to that. He says, reckon yourselves. In other words, consider yourselves to likewise be dead unto sin. Uh, We could maybe describe it this way. Make the practical uh, or make the positional the practical. What is positionally true of you, what God has determined to be true of you through what Christ did on Calvary, make that a practical reality through your choice in your life day by day. And when we come to Colossians chapter number one, the historical and positional reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its impact on believers has been well established in the first two chapters. And in verse number one, he begins to make a practical application of this truth. In other words, hey, listen, the fact that the tomb is empty is not just some dusty theological fact. It's not just some, you know, it's not just some answer on a Bible trivia quiz. It is literally the most activating, energizing, empowering truth and reality in the life of the believer. And I don't mean merely it motivates us. I mean, it elevates us. I mean, it gives us an ability to live in a way that we could not were it not for that reality. And so he says in verse number one, he he gives three things that we'll just sort of notice before we get into our preaching. Three things that mark the resurrection life. He says, if ye then be risen with Christ. And he's speaking of the positional truth. He says, if this is true and we know that it is, then here's what you should do. Seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. In other words, we ought to have new ambitions in life. We ought not set our sights low and on earthly things. Verse number two, he says, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. We ought to have new affections. We ought to love eternal things. Once we understand the, uh, the eternality of spiritual reality and truth, that ought to cause a readjustment of our value system. Uh, before you got born again, man, everything in this world had, was of the highest currency because all you knew were this world. But when you got born again, you learned this truth that this world passeth away, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And that gave you a different value system. And so he tells us we ought to have new affections. He says, for ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. In verse 4 he says, when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. We ought to have a new anticipation. It was said several times tonight, listen, I'm glad this world is not our home. Glad we are passing through. 
It's a great comfort to me. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't look for things to get better in this world. I really don't. I, I don't see it happening and I don't anticipate it will. Now, I'm not going to limit God to what God might so choose to do. But man, there's a trajectory and there's a momentum in society today. We all know it's messed up. We're just powerless to change it. There's no brakes on this thing anymore. I mean, listen, I, the, 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 I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was fitting some of the things that happened over this past week. In many ways, that train in Ohio was a good figurative illustration of our government. All right. I, I, I'm talking about I'm talking about a 50 car train, uh, a train car long, uh, a, a poison bureaucracy hurtling down the track, wheels aflame and brakes long gone and just waiting to just turn over and poison all of the rest of our culture and society. Man, it was a fitting representation of how we feel that this train has lost its brakes. And I'll tell you this, we need to be pulling up our stakes. Falling in love with heaven, getting getting rid of our addiction to this world. So he talks about a new anticipation. But then I want you to notice the usage of a word in verse 5. The Apostle Paul says, mortify therefore. You've heard me say this dozens of times, but the therefores are there for a reason. Uh, It's a connective word, right? It's saying in light of all that's been established, there should be a response. Remember the pattern that Paul has set, a historical fact, a theological force that's extending from that or or reality that is secured by that, and then a practical application of that truth. Well, in verse number five, he begins to talk about steps we should take in light of the new life of Jesus Christ in us. I want you to notice uh, just about three things tonight and then we'll be done. What should we do in light of the empty tomb? Notice the first thing in verse 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Now, listen, church, you had it, you heard it. Y'all are the members. I'm sorry. That's what it says. It doesn't say mortify the pastor. Amen. No, we understand what it means when it says members. It's not talking about church members. Uh, thank the Lord. Amen. Uh, but rather it's talking about your appendages, your arms, your feet. Uh, in the book of Romans, Paul would talk about yielding our members as instruments of unrighteousness. And so we might say this, the first thing we should do in light of the empty tomb, in light of the resurrection life of Christ, and it being not only at the disposal, uh, but it really being the substance of the Christian life, the first natural thing we should do is to mortify our fleshly indulgence. He says, mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Now, is this some sort of self-harm he's advocating? No, of course not. Because he then describes what he means by those members. He says, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, he's not talking about mortifying the things that do those things. He's talking about mortifying those things. In other words, acknowledging that the hands aren't the problem. It's what we do with the hands. The feet aren't the problem. It's where the feet carry us. The eyes are not the problem, but it's what the eyes behold. And he's recognizing that under the root of all of this is the flesh and its tendency to live contrary to the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks, number one, about dealing with the flesh. And how do we do that? I will tell you that the greatest enemy you have to your advancement, your maturing, your development as a Christian is the flesh. It is your ever-present foe. And the flesh is not something that is renovated or regenerated or sanctified or justified. It must be mortified. What does it mean to mortify something? It means to put it to death. 
Now, again, God's not advocating here for suicide or some form of self-harm. But he's talking about taking the authority of the flesh in our life, neutering it and mortifying it and refusing it uh, the opportunity to govern us day by day. And it's just a reminder that, listen, the flesh cannot be compromised with. It must be mortified. We have a tendency to sometimes think that we're pretty good. We just have a few things we need to get sorted out. And that's a wrongheaded perspective. Rather, what we need to recognize is that us apart from God is utterly, thoroughly, exhaustively, and hopefully depraved. And that inasmuch as we lean upon self, we are always inviting sorrow and sin into our lives. And that it is only by rejecting the autonomy or authority that the flesh boasts that we can see the will of God done in our lives. Uh, your best bet is, uh, and this is how Paul said it, he said, give none occasion to the flesh. Don't trust it. Don't pretend as though somehow your flesh is not predisposed to the same things that other people's are. Now, I recognize there may be certain sins that appeal to some that don't appeal to others. But understand this, that the devil may have figured out how to skin you this way instead of that way, but he'll still skin you. And the flesh, uh, you may have unique, proprietary, distinct temptations that are a part of your personality and disposition, but they're just as wicked and just as destructive as anyone else's. Whatever it is in our life, the flesh, it is a dangerous foe. We see dealing with the flesh, and then he speaks of the danger of the flesh. Verse 6, for which things sake? The wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. Now, uh, theologians can argue about this passage, about what he is intending by his statement here. Is he suggesting that before you got born again, you were predisposed to these things, but now you don't live in them? Or is he rather suggesting that the flesh has always been predisposed to these things, and when it is active in your life, it will live this way, but positionally you've been delivered and so you must mortify the flesh. I would say this, there's not a hair's breadth of difference between the two perspectives. Remember, this is the intent at which Paul's using this whole passage. He's saying, here's a positional truth, man, here's what you are in Christ. And that's how God sees you. And rather than running from that, you should be running to that. And so is he talking when he speaks of the children of disobedience? Is he talking about lost people or is he talking about saved people living disobediently? And my answer is yes. He's saying the act of disobedience is the impulse of the flesh. You think about disobedience. What is disobedience? Uh, Disobedience can only be interpreted in light of some sense and semblance of authority. Well, what is the authority? The authority is the authority of God. The lost people live the way they do in disobedience of God. But I would tell you this, though, you are, if you're saved, you are eternally, thoroughly, exhaustively, irreparably saved. You understand? You're not getting out of this thing, amen? You're going to heaven with me, whether you like it or not. (laughs) But there's a lot of saved people that don't live like saved people. They live like lost people. And Paul is pointing to the fact that the flesh and its insurrection, we've used that word a lot over the past few years, haven't we? It's insurrection against the authority of God. Whether it's present in the lost person or in the saved person, it draws the ire and wrath of God. 
Now, God will not deal with you as with a lost person, but he will absolutely deal with you as a son, as a daughter, as a child, and as a servant. And I will tell you this, there's a lot of things, I, in a lot of ways, I'm harder on my kids than I'd ever be on anyone else's. I'd ever be on anyone else's. I told my wife the other day, I said, you know, if, if an adult gets on to my child, I ought to be apologizing to somebody. I either should be apologizing to the adult that they had to, or apologizing to the child that an adult got onto him when it wasn't uh, justified or warranted. But it should be an embarrassing thing for me as a parent that someone had to get onto my child. I should feel like something needs to be rectified in that situation. And I'll tell you this, how does God feel? How does God feel? Whenever, listen, in, in our life, whenever we're living and behaving in, in rebellion and, and, and riotous living, how does God feel? Well, of course it grieves his parents' heart. It grieves his father's heart. I would say this, that God pays attention when the flesh governs a person. For the lost person, it brings his wrath. For the saved person, it brings chastening. But understand that letting the flesh govern you is not a harmless activity. It's a dangerous thing. Then notice he speaks the deliverance from the flesh in verse 7. He says, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. There again, why is he saying this? What's his intention? Is he just taking a stroll down memory lane? No, what he's saying is, don't you understand that when you got born again, the intention was for God to deliver your life from the bondage that sin in the flesh produced in. And Paul is not in any way suggesting a state of sinless sanctification. But nor is he endorsing this sort of loose attitude of license in the name of grace. And he's saying whenever you got saved, Uh, The way that you were delivered from that old manner of living is you died with Christ on Calvary. And he's saying, don't ever forget that that's how that happened. It was through a death that you were delivered. And he's trying to get us to understand that likewise, it'll be through dying to self that we are delivered from the influence of the flesh or at least the overbearing control of it in our life day by day. You're never going to get to a place where you wake up in the morning and the flesh gives you a day off. I'm not suggesting that. But nor do you have to wake up every day and be the servant of such. You don't have to wake up every day and say, well, I just can't help myself. I'm just going to do whatever I feel like doing. And if it grieves God and if it it stains the testimony of Christ, who cares? No, we don't have to live that way. But it's going to take dying to sell. So the first is to mortify our fleshly indulgence. Notice a second thing, verse number 8. He says, but now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth, lie not one to another. Now, before he's speaking of things that tend on the whole to dwell within the internality of a person. He talks about fornication. And of course, fornication can be expressed outwardly, engaged with with another person. Uh, But the Bible makes it clear it begins in the heart before it ever travels externally. He talks about uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. These are all things that we think of as being sort of internal sins, things that might not be seen. But in verse 8, he talks about anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication. And in verse 9, lying to one another. He's talking about our outward manner of living. I would say it this way. First, you say, preacher, what do we do in light of the empty tomb? Well, the first thing is to mortify our fleshly indulgence. But the second is we ought to modify our earthly walk. We ought to live the differently in light of that. Uh, what a great tragedy it is. And... and mm-mm. 
What a great tragedy it is that we could live the same after the empty tomb as what we lived before we ever met Jesus. And you say, well, preacher, the empty tomb happened 2,000 years ago. Uh, not for me, it didn't. Amen. For me, it happened on December 1st, 1997. Now, you understand what I mean. I'm not saying there was some personal, private dispensation. What I'm saying is that was when it became real to me. It's not been that long ago in my life. And you say, preacher, I've been saved 50, 60 years. Well, that's not been all that long ago either. It ought to change the way that we live. What does it produce? Well, notice three things here. One, it produces a new performance. He says, put off all these. Then he lists a bunch of things. You ought to live different. You ought to live different. A person born again, because Christ is living in them and through them, should live markedly different than the world around them. We find that Christ lived this way. Everywhere he went, they remarked on the proprietary nature of his dignity and character. The integrity, and here's a good Bible word, virtue of Jesus Christ. What was his virtue? It was his wholesome righteousness. And they talked about how no man ever did what he did. No man ever went the places he went. No man ever spoke the things that he spoke. They said he is different from everyone around him. And he did not do this by becoming a spectacle or a freak or some sort of abnormality. He rather did this by manifesting the life of the Father through him in the way that he lived his life. We ought to have a new performance. Number two, it ought to give us a new perspective. Verse nine, lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Again, tying in the positional and the practical. He says, this is true of you because of Jesus Christ. You have put off the old man. You have put on the new man. And yet we find in the book of Ephesians, we are commanded to put off the old man and to put on the new man. How do we reconcile those two things? Well, because positionally that's true of us. That old man is buried in a tomb somewhere in Jerusalem. That new man is living and walking in power in Jesus Christ. But practically, that is often not the case. But here he's saying this, that ought to be the perspective we have in life. Well, to say, man, that's an old manner of living. That's an old way. I love how Paul says, that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I, sometimes people read that and they think what it means is all things are become easy. Or they think it means all things are become spotless or flawless or impeccable. But nothing could be further from the truth. You can still, as a believer, sin, but that sin won't be like it was before you got born again. You can't go back and live that life you used to live. That's gone. It's passed away. You can go back to it. Listen, you can feast on the same things and it'll turn to ash in your mouth. You can listen to the same sort of music and the same sort of media and, and it'll just be sounding brass and tinkling cymbal. You can go back and try to partake and you'll find it bitter. Won't be the same as it used to be. You're a new creature. Paul's saying, accept it and live your life in light of that truth. He tells us we ought to have a new perspective. And then it gives us a new personality. Boy, heaven help us. Some of us needed that. Verse 11 says this. For there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free. But Christ is all. And in all, I wish and some of you have been able to, but I wish 
as preparation for this one point in this sermon, you could have sat through the last 487 weeks of our Sunday school class because we've been preaching through Ephesians and talking. That's really what the book of Ephesians is about. It's about who you were before you got saved has been swallowed up in the personality of Christ. And it's not to say that we are, are robbed of any of any sort of distinctions and, and idiosyncrasies and and, and and preferences. And it's not to say that God strips us of personality, but rather it's to say that he superimposes on top of that the personality of Christ. Such that everything in our life must bend the knee to Jesus. If it won't bend the knee, it'll be ground to pieces. But if it'll bend the knee, maybe it can coexist with the person of Christ. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, things about our personality. If it cannot coincide with Jesus Christ, it must be jettisoned. It must be put away. You know why? Because Christ is all. He's not just some. He's not just part. He's all. Whatever you were before him is nothing. And whatever you are apart from him is nothing. He is all. And here's what he desires, to be in all. In all what? In every facet of your life. You shouldn't have a secular area of your life. Now, here's what I mean when I say that. I don't suggest that we don't have secular interests or hobbies or whatever they might be. But I'm saying we don't get to fence off a portion of our life and put a no trespassing sign on it for God. We don't get to say, this little area of my life is my own, God, and you don't get access to. No, listen, he's in all. There's no part of your life he's not in. He bought you lock, stock, and barrel. So we we should mortify our fleshly indulgence, modify our earthly walk, and finally, we ought to live to magnify our heavenly Father. Verse 12, put on, therefore, as the elect of God. Hey, you, did your parents ever say, act like somebody? Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, act like somebody. What, what should we do? Holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and long-suffering. He lists a few ways that we ought to magnify the Lord in our life. And I'll just catalog them for you and be done. The first in verse 12 is through holiness and humility. He says, you ought to act like you are gods. You ought to act like you are gods. I don't mean like you are a god. I mean like you belong to God. You are his possession. You are his property. We are the elect of God, the chosen of God, a choice people of God, we are holy and we are beloved and we should behave that way. It's funny the 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 sum total value of the word beloved in society today is merely to bolster people's ego. But really what it should do is strip us of any hubris and pride because we don't deserve an ounce of that love. But it's been bestowed by the grace of God. It ought to make us eternally, immeasurably humble to realize that the God of glory knows our name. He loves us. He, he puts our tears in a bottle. Holiness and humility. Bowels of mercies. Kindness. Humbleness of mind. Meekness. Long suffering. In other words, our character and conduct should behold it. Look at verse 13. He says this, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. We ought to magnify him through forbearance and forgiveness. It's interesting that this would be tied so closely to the empty tomb, to the resurrection life of Christ. I think sometimes that we are, we have this perspective as though we are called upon to forgive others 
in memorial to Christ. But that's wrong. It's not merely we do it because he forgave us. It's we can forgive others because he in his forgiving nature can control our lives, drive, lead, guide our behavior day by day. You understand that forgiveness is an act of faith. And it's not an act of faith in that person. It's an act of faith in God. It's not saying I'm trusting they'll never hurt me or, or, or never, 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 you know, do anything to me ever again. That's not why we forgive. It's naive to forgive for that reason. It, it, it's to deny human nature. It's to set yourself up for failure and for bitterness. Rather, we forgive because God has commanded it. But once again, not merely in memorial or in memoriam of the fact that Christ forgave us, but rather that he in being an immeasurably, immensible, forgiving God and living powerfully through us, through our submission to the leadership of the Holy Spirit and through his word, he has the ability to give and grant forgiveness in our hearts towards others. We are trusting him that he because he forgave us and he's living in us that he can through us forgive others. I like the word forbearance. It's a lot more polite than the word putting up with. But that's really what it means. Forbearance. Putting up with one another. Forbearance. Forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any. You know, they quarreled all the way back then. Uh, it's funny. Some people have <laughs> some people have this almost. De, um, almost hallowed, deified perspective about the early New Testament church. As though what was done in the early New Testament church is invariably better and purer than what's done today. But you know, here's the truth and reality, right? They were human beings like anyone else. You understand there was a time when they, they tried communal living. That didn't work. You know why? Folks is lazy. That's why. That's why it doesn't work. I'm glad we didn't hang on to that. Amen. Aren't you? And we have this idea sometimes. But you know, they quarreled even like we quarrel today. And so what does he say? Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And then verse 14, he says this above all these things. Man, that gets your attention. Above all these things. What does he say? Put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. A lot of people have tried to read meanings into charity that are not in charity. But charity is this. It is love in action. We use the term charity in, you know, sort of a more common sense today, but really in a very similar way, right? It's when a person goes and gives to a charity, the idea is that they are putting their money where their mouth is, or if they go and volunteer at a charity, it is a place that is, in theory, supposed to be expressing love towards less fortunate people through action. And so charity is really what? It's love in action. It's not love in theory, but it's loving, as the Bible says, in deed and in truth. And so what he says is this, put on charity, put on charity. It, we don't come with it. We got to put it on. Uh, it, we come with infatuation, right? <laughs> but we don't come with charity. We got to put it on. Amen. Put on charity. And then he says this, which is the bond of perfectness. Let me use these two words, mercy and maturity. And those two things, by the way, go hand in hand. The more mature you get in Christ, the more of a right perspective you get on the brevity of this world. And the more of a perspective you get on the brevity of this world, the less of a priceless commodity and more of a ready resource does mercy seem. We think that it's hard to be merciful because we're going to have to live for a long time with that mercy and showing that mercy. 
But the closer we get to heaven, the more we recognize that we're down here but a short period of time. Blessed are the merciful, they shall obtain mercy. And then the bond of perfectness, maturing, maturity. And then finally, and I'm done, verse 15. He says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. I use these two words, peace and praise. Peace and praise. We can have peace. We are being conditioned to believe that we're living in a world without peace. But the difference is this. Peace lives where the Prince of Peace reigns. He don't reign in this world right now. So there's no peace externally. But there can be peace in your heart. Not just there can be, there should be. Something's wrong when there's not. I'm not saying that I my peace is never disrupted, mind you. I'm not suggesting that it's such an unusual and, and, and rare occasion for a believer's peace to be disrupted. Happens to me, happens to you, happens to me every time I drive. Amen. Man, I'm glad I'm glad Church of God ain't right. I'd never get to heaven. I'd lose my salvation every time I hit I-40. But I am saying we can have peace. We can't. How do we do that? Well, we let the peace of God rule in your hearts. We gotta let it. You know why? Because our flesh don't want it to. I don't know if you realize that your flesh is addicted to fear, anxiety, and drama. Feeds off of. Feeds off of. It, it makes it feel something. Gives it something to do. What is the old statement? Anxiety worries like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it don't take you anywhere. And the flesh, it's addicted to fear and anxiety. Mine is and yours is and everyone's is. And it doesn't want the peace of God ruling in its heart. You ever notice how we live in a society that can't stand silence anymore? There's got to be, got to be constant noise. Constant noise. Not just me because i got kids, but everywhere. Constant noise. Why is that? Well, people don't want to be left alone with their thoughts. And the flesh, it doesn't like silence. It doesn't like moments of solitude to consider its inadequacy and, 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 and its inability. And so it doesn't want the peace of God ruling in your heart. But when you mortify the flesh and recognize God's on the throne, the peace of God, it can rule in, in your heart. You're called to it. You're called to the peace of God. And then I like what he says, be thankful. Praise God. Praise God. I got no complaints on him. I'm not saying I never complain about him. I'm sure I do. Shame on me. But I'm sure I do. If not outwardly, I'm sure I do in my spirit at times. But I've got no legitimate complaint towards God. I really don't. He's been awful good to me. I'll tell you what I ought to be doing, what you ought to be doing. We ought to be living in light of the empty tomb. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes to play. I want to invite you to come, and if there's any area that the Holy Spirit dealt with you about, might not have even been something I preached on. It might have been something totally unrelated. But God dealt with you about something in your heart, in your life. Won't you meet the Lord in this altar? Won't you surrender that thing to Him? Say, Preacher, I don't know if I could keep my promises. Well, don't make Him any promises. Just come down and bear your heart to Him. Preacher, I don't know if I could commit to never make a mistake again. I'm not. God's not asking you to. I'm just asking you to come down and pour your heart out to Him. Tell him what you're troubled about. Tell him what you're burdened about. Let him have his will and way in your life. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.